Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. To Try Love, a literal roundtable conversation about movies we try. You can find us on Twitter Get tickets to a number of great showings and programs that are going on throughout the year and other cool ways to support them. Uh, my name is Jason Todd Daphnis. Uh, I don't know anything about curiosity. That's not part of what I do. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Uh, for these sins and the sins of my previous life, I am deeply sorry. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. My name's Aaron, and I'm the best bugger on the West Coast. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. We are not down a man. We are up a guest. Uh, Seth Zarati is joining us there again for this very special episode. Seth. Hey, guys. Uh, I'm not following uh, you. I'm looking for you, and there's a difference. And you can find me on Twitter at SMZerati. <laughs> Very good. We all we all really pulled through on that one. We usually fuck that really hard. We bungle that whole intro thing pretty often, but this was a good one. Uh, I want to inform everybody before we actually start discussing that tickets are now available for uh, Nick Cage National Treasure. That is a series going on oh, yes. trial on all summer. Uh, 13 of Nick Cage's most iconic roles uh, starting in June and ending in August of 2022. In screening order, we've got Moonstruck, Bringing Out the Dead, Face Off, Snake Eyes, Con Air, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, Raising Arizona, Leaving Las Vegas, Drive Angry, Red Rock West, Valley Girl, Wild at Heart, and Mandy. An entire God, it's going to be a good summer. Piece. Fuck. It's a Drive Angry, huh? Drive Angry. <laughs> All right, okay. It is unhinged uh, as it's it should be. It's a good be. series. But go to trilon.org, yeah. navigate to their calendar. I'm sure that it's a banner by now. But check out uh, tickets for that. We'll probably be doing episodes, or excuse me, episodes of our show for a number of those movies. So get caught up before you actually have to uh, listen to this podcast. And you do have to listen to this podcast. Uh, but before you listen to this podcast, you have to listen to Aaron give a little bit of a rundown of what this movie is about. Yes, uh, we are talking about The Conversation, 1974 film directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, it stars Gene Hackman as Harry Call, uh, which is also what I tell Harry when he's uh, making a booty call for me to come over in the middle of the <laughs> night and say, Harry Call. Now, uh, Harry Call is a surveillance expert known as the best in the business, or at least the best on the West Coast. Uh, he's an expert at bugging people, uh, listening in to their conversations and recording them for his various clients. Uh, his work has spread over to his home life in kind of a myriad of disturbing ways. He has multiple locks on his door. He uh, constantly uses pay phones uh, to make phone calls. Uh, he has a house line, but he tells everybody that he doesn't have one. Um, he doesn't even tell his girlfriend, Amy, any uh, details about his own personal life. He's a very secluded, weird, paranoid man. Um, he is hired by a client for a particularly risky and complicated job, uh, uh, just kind of complicated due to the nature of it. He's supposed to record a conversation uh, of a couple as they walk through a very, very uh, busy uh, kind of crowded park. There's music in the background, people talking. I think it's Union Square in San Francisco. Um, uh, Harry succeeds at doing this, uh, but when he hears that the couple are uh, afraid for their lives, he begins to question the ethics of handing the recording over to his client. Uh, also in this film, John Cazale as Harry's co-worker Stan, uh, Alan Garfield as William Moran, uh, Harry's competitor and uh, kind of partial admirer, uh, Cindy Williams uh, as Anne, a woman who gets the best of Harry and steals the recording that he makes of the couple. Uh, and last but not least, uh, Harrison Ford as Martin Stett, uh, his client's assistant. Um, the I, conversation I, is generally... I'm, I'm sorry, we can't leave the uh, cast section without mentioning Robert Duvall as... Dick Robert Duvall, Duvall just Holy sitting shit. around in the background of a scene. <laughs> but yes, it, Robert it, Duvall. It's like the stuff. biggest Star Turn cameo ever where you go up into that room <laughs> and you're like, Holy shit, he was Robert Duvall all along? Robert Duvall. Duvall. Anyway, I had that Robert moment. Duvall. Yes, uh, th that is very good. Um, uh, yeah, uh, the conversation is generally regarded as one of the greatest films of all time, uh, sandwiched in between uh, The Godfather, 
parts one and two actually filmed uh, concurrently with the Godfather part two um, also five years before apocalypse. Now uh, the conversation is a, a generally considered a classic film, uh, kind of in a, a golden era of one of the truly like great directors uh, in film. Although it should be stated uh, that all of these films do pale in comparison to 1996's Jack starring Robin Williams. Uh, that's not funny to you. Look up the film Jack, starring Robin Williams. This is a good uh, bit. Wow, this has never happened before. Hey, a good talk, bit. Speak not, more about that, this? Aaron. What is yeah. it about Jack that uh, that you so? Well, that is directed by Francis Ford Coppola, uh, outside of his uh, golden era, where Robin Williams plays a person with a certain sort of uh, biologic, like genetic uh, disorder that causes him to grow very, very fast. So he is entering fifth grade, but he looks like he's like a fifty-year-old man, uh, and then a lot just. A lot of really wacky shenanigans kind of happen uh, after that. That being said, uh, back to the conversation. Uh, Seth, you, you watched this film. Uh, it's my understanding that you quite enjoyed it. Uh, why don't you just hit me with your general thoughts? Yeah, uh, the guys know from outside of the podcast, I'm going to make it like on the ledger in the podcast world. I did not like 1970s film for a long time. I thought that they were way too plotty way too meditative, way too thematic. I needed action. I needed spectacle. And honestly, uh, the conversation just chewed me up and spat me out. Like it was, it was all of those things, you know, like, uh, Aaron said, like that is the plot summary. There's not a lot of plot that happens here, but like, it is so riveting. Like, honestly, just Gene Hackman's performance as Harry Call is like, honestly, honestly, like one of the best performances I've ever seen. And I'm really looking to diving into it. But like, we could take this any way you want. And I would find something to talk about. It was a phenomenal movie. Uh, I was going to say Hackman wise, this is the I think the third Hackman film. We got Night Moves, French Connection. Uh, and then, and then this, I that think night moves is maybe a little underrated. You mean, or that- yeah. Yeah. On this pod. I think this like- is like, it's like a weird, he, it is, he is kind of weirdly unhinged in all three of those movies, but in like very different oh, yeah. ways. He's, he's got the range. He plays a wide variety of little freaks. He's great at it. Yeah, he's like, oh my god, he, he <laughs> yeah. absolutely is a little freak. Yeah, very oh, underrated. surveillance freak and is also a, like, a very uh, good type of This movie's freak. a great movie for little freaks because John Cazal is like an all-time <laughs> little freak if character there's, actor. If there's ever a guy who looked yeah. like somebody put a bike, uh, like a bike tire inflator in a guy's forehead and just... It's so good, man. Down. I love that guy. <laughs> so strangely Have you shaped. seen uh, Dog Day Afternoon? He's, he's fucking no. phenomenal in Dog Day Afternoon, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the conversation. It is indeed. Uh, and to that end of what Seth was saying about wherever we could pick up, a lot of my thoughts and a lot of Seth's thoughts we sort of discussed after the movie uh, revolve around like that core and uh, get ready for some dialectics because there's that core, oh. I guess, di- dichotomy between, um, oh. well, maybe we should back up a little bit. The character uh, is obviously very secluded, very like un- non-trusting. He, uh, one of his lines in the beginning is that he doesn't care what conversations are about. He cares that they're like complete, that they are whole, that they're basically like that he can give it to somebody and have the form of the thing be acceptable. He does not give a shit what's in it. Like he has in the past, uh, as one character later relays, uh, given information to somebody who used it to enact violence against another person, against to kill a family, basically. Uh, and he, he says the movie is about undoing this lie, but he says that it like, he doesn't care that that's not his business. I think it's really, it's Um, really important what you just landed on. Right. Which is that like from the very beginning, I think the movie and especially on rewatch for me, because this is the second time I've seen this is, is super clear about laying out the fact that Harry call is a man who is fundamentally like living a self-deception. Right. I mean, like the very, his very first introductory note is I don't care what they're saying. And yet he's obsessed with, this world of surveillance. He's a yes. he's he's a deeply Catholic man named Harry <laughs> who lives alone, uh, who idealizes oh. but is terrified of women uh, and wants to observe society without participating in it. Um, so I really I have no relationship with this movie whatsoever. I found it really you hard just to can't break into yeah. see yourself. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, couldn't, yeah. Uh, couldn't find anything in it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, one. Um... One of the nuggets that uh, both of you picked up on, and this was something that I talked to with Jason about, was like how much the movie is focused on, like again, that dichotomy between Harry 
uh's character focusing on being this sort of dispassionate objective observer but it to me to me the movie is sort of and it, there's almost this meta quality where you as the audience are like oh i'm taking in this information that is presented to me i'm taking dialogue i'm taking you know interactions with the characters with the music and i'm trying to build an understanding of what this thing is and i'm trying to be dispassionate about it and then you know as the movie progresses you just see like how fundamentally impossible that is mm-hmm. and like uh the great moment for me where i was like fucking a is like at the the fever pitch of the movie where he's in the hotel uh, and he learns that what he thought was the truth the Harry thought was the truth about this uh, conspiracy to commit murder. It happens for the same time at the audience as the audience where it's just like, Oh, these words that I was hearing, I misunderstood them. Mm -hmm. And like this thing that I thought was truth was not. And And I, I I turned to Jason and and another friend we were with Emily. uh, And I was just like, effusive in in my my mind blowing. <laughs> and like it's, it's a great twist it's, even a, yeah. it's yeah. a particular grammatical twist right because it's literally that he misheard the emphasis on the word yeah. like there's a sentence and, where he says yeah. he'd kill us if they have the chance is what harry heard and then later on uh, it says he'd kill us if we had the chance and it's like and there, you could read it's actually right like, it's literally two different like audio bits it's yes. two different adrs very clearly it's the so first time we hear fucking it, good dude it, um the gargle to like that line it, it they've they've flopped it around completely and that's what i'm i mean to seth's point like it is a a fourth wall moment of like yes wait did they actually change that audio yes they did because they wanted you to come to the same conclusion they didn't want you to infer from dialogue like harry was supposed to have been able to from the beginning well and and but, what's so interesting about it is that um seth i think you got to like the heart of of the really great like twin deception in this movie because Harry's sort of lying to himself in two different ways, right? Because he's not only lying to himself that he can be dispassionate, but he's lying to himself that, or he he's sort of like, he thinks that he can be dispassionate, first of all. And then he thinks that by being dispassionate, he is um, divesting himself from complicity in whatever happens with these tapes. Both of those things are seen to be untrue, Right. But like you kind of think the movie is going to be about the second thing, right? About the idea that like, oh, even if Harry Call is dispassionate about this, he is still going to have this sort of civic responsibility and feel this guilt about his um, relationship with the events that are going on. But then it's actually revealed that actually like the the real deception, the real problem is that like Harry was was misguided by his own value judgments from the very start, right? Like he misunderstood what was happening in this conversation from the first place. And once you see that happen, that twist, you see that the movie had actually sort of like planted the, the seeds of Harry's misunderstandings all along because you see his weird and sad relationship with women throughout this movie, which is really a big part of what ends up happening here. Right. Is that Harry, because of his guilt at having had an innocent wife be killed earlier, he sort of like, unbeknownst to himself has this idealization of women as sort of innocent and victims. And that plays out in all of the relationships he has with other women throughout this movie, right? First, his sort of the woman he's having an affair with later on the, um, the sex worker that he that's at the party that ends up getting one over on him. And finally, and most sort of fatally, right? Like he believes that the director's wife and or daughter is the victim in this case and she ends up being the perpetrator and so like not only is there this idea that harry was always going to be responsible as soon as he entered into this world of espionage but there's also this idea that like harry was never even impartial in any form from the start right like as soon as he started listening he was deriving value judgments about what was going on because it's impossible to listen without forming those value judgments right, right. there's it's it's wild the way that this movie pulls the rug out from under you that way and makes you sort of examine your own value judgments at the same time. Like you had said, mm-hmm. Seth, it's, it's wild. Well, it's, it's how it gets us there from this point of like the character that it has set up, the character that is in text is I don't like, I don't care. I'm, I'm objective. I'm just an observer. I am the recorder. I am not the like interpreter. And it moves from that to this realization of not just like, Harry's perspective sort of quote unquote changing, but his realization that his, that what he thought was his perspective, what he thought was his like view on the world was 
not like you said it, it never was based in truth like he was never able to separate his own interpretation his own consumption of message of medium to like in the way that he thought he was um and the way that does that is through repeated scenes of him reviewing the tape he only gives it a second or third listen after that initial scene where he's dialing a b and c to like get the best audio and put together like the best podcast he can and then at the end of that he he deliver he tries to deliver it gets like word that something might get because he's interrupted by Harrison Ford's character. He assumes something shady is going on. Uh, he takes it back and then he just reviews it more. And eventually he comes to this conclusion that, Oh, there's something, you know, foul play is afoot. I will step in to stop it. And that's sort of like the more traditional way that this movie starts is like, Oh, he's recognized something wrong and he's the only man who can stop it. And you could probably like, if you think that's where the plot is going, you could follow it almost to the end. But I mean, I've seen this movie before, so I sort of this time around knew that like that's not where it ends up. It ends up at a completely different cl- conclusion. But for, like, I love how it uses a very like parsable, very easy to get on board with uh, sort of hook. And through those repeated scenes of reviewing the audio and coming to a greater clarity and like uncovering a conspiracy kind of thing, it, like it sets up those expectations just to knock them down. Like at the very end, I I, I loved how it how it pulls that turn at the end, like we're saying here. Well, and, and I really love how they characterize Harry Call's desperation to become objective, right? Like, I think that he is a character who is so, he he's so guilty about his own involvement in society or like, yeah. in, I mean, at, at one point he even, they do a very Martin Scorsese thing where he goes to confession and he literally says like, oh, I've taken pleasure in impure thoughts, right? And it's like, for a bugger mm-hmm. who proclaims to be objective it's sort of like that's the that's like the smoking gun right but it, but it's like he he thinks that sort of like by um solving this mystery right by being dispassionate enough that he can suss out exactly what's going on on that tape and then not only that but going further and in, in entering into the world and being able to stop it he can sort of undo his own guilt at having taken pleasure from this this sort of like dispassionate apparent um spying that he's been committing um and in in fact it's like it, it the the are the movie goes to such great lengths to show how that that was always impossible and always itself selfishly motivated right and it it does that by as uh Seth noted like similarly formally implicating the audience themselves right because just like the um sort of unbeknownst to Harry and kind of even unbeknownst to the perpetrators their conversation ends up playing on all of these notions that Harry, these unconscious biases that Harry is reading into the situation as a um, sub because of his own psyche. And that also happens to us as the viewers, right? Like you had said, Jason, like you come into this movie suspecting the plot and how it's going to play out. And then the twist, as Seth noted, is that it, it reverses it all entirely. Right. And in doing so, it really implicates the viewer and gets us to understand like, Oh, we were doing the same thing Harry Call did, right? We were sort of idealizing this woman and we were sort of idealizing him as this hero who was going to sort of like reverse the um, the guilt that he had established early on. Um, and in fact, those things can't happen using the tools that, that we thought we could make, we could use them to, um, to do, right? Yeah, uh, just to like continue this, because honestly, I could I could talk about this all day was like, the this idea, this false notion of, like, being dispassionate and being objective and how that gets confronted with like personal bias and all these types of things. Like, there is, to me, this idea, or I've always believed one of my personal biases is that like, when you go looking for trouble, you find it type of thing. So by the end of the movie, Harry call like has this idea of what this thing is going to become. And then after its resolution, like we all know what happens, but like he goes back to his apartment, he's feeling uneasy about everything that's transpired. And it's already been established that he's like a very distrusting, very solitary person. He gets that call from Martin Stett uh Harrison Ford's character and then like there was a part of me that was wondering like if Stat didn't call at all right oh yeah absolutely would would the same thing have happened and some part of me was just like yes like yeah this guy has been so 
distrusting and so like even in the arc of the movie like betrayed by the sex worker and like the other competitor bugs him with the pen and like you see him open up to that uh that sex worker in the like parking garage and you just see like the the torment on his face when it's being replayed and you can kind of for me the dots i connected is like oh well like he's he's never gonna speak his emotions again um but like he went looking for trouble or he is looking for trouble. He, he is a conspiratorialist. Like uh, he tears his, his home apart. He destroys the figure of mother Mary in his apartment. And that has been like the only thing consistent throughout the movie that he is like, that he yeah. reveres is like this deep religious Catholic guilt. Uh, and so to me, it was just kind of, I I know we talked a little bit about the meta textual, like what was going on in America at this time, but like this, this idea of, oh, if you call into question our institutions, our values, and you're looking for a way to undermine them, you most certainly will find a way because if it is in your nature to be distrustful, like you will distrust. Uh, and I, I just like, I just thought it was really great how, how the conversation did that. Well, he he also like none of the precautions that he takes do anything right, and I think that he knows that none of the precautions that right. I think he he knows that there is no way for him to you know if they want to listen in on you if they want to you know dig up whatever that's dirt, right right they, if they the can do that surveillance is like a gun right it's like there's no defense against it it's just very effective right. yeah. in well, whatever direction I mean, he, point he has the. He has the locks on his apartment, uh, yet somehow the landlord still gets in. He doesn't mm-hmm. tell anybody his personal information, yet his his girlfriend still is able to, like, you know, see where he lives in his apartment and, like, sees him, uh, like, creeping outside of uh, her apartment. Um, landlord knows he's, like, 44 years old, right? Like, this is despite being the most, like, you know, shut-in, neurotic guy alive, right, even before the end of the movie. Um, and that exteriority of suspicion and distrust and isolation reflects an interior urge, right? It's like he thinks that if if he can become that isolated, he can also somehow affect the world from affecting him, right? It's like that that if he becomes totally like totally isolated, he can become totally dispassionate and also deal with the turmoil that's inside him, right? Like he can he can somehow disarm the fact that he's being affected by these things if he can make himself totally objective. Um, right. There's, and those, those are like the twin motivations that are driving him. Well, that's uh, like the point of a scene, like that, that middle section where he's sort of, where he's brought in the people from the conference, from the conference to his uh, workplace. And he's sort of showing them around and they're drinking and they're having fun and they're riding the Vespa around. That's the point of that scene where um, Moran is it the competitor, the East coast competitor is uh, he's, you know, the best on the East Coast, he's seen as direct rival sort of thing, but but he's buddy-buddy. Um, he has, like, he starts getting after Harry about that one case in the past that actually led to the death of, one, of an entire family because of the information that Harry gave up to the client. And he's getting into the very, like, how could you type language. He's like, doesn't that affect you? Do you ever think about your role in that kind of questions? And uh, and then Harry, like, slinks away from the background and his his partner, I forget the guy, John Cazale, um, he has this, uh, like he jumps in and he's like, it was a work of art. It was beautiful. Like the, the form and performance of this was incredible. And then Harry comes back in and he's like, you should have seen it sort of thing. He's able to, oh, like, he's so enthusiastic, he's right? All of a sudden himself from like the actual impact. Like you said, the way that this thing that he's done has effect and he doesn't have to think about how it affects him. He doesn't have to think about how he affected a situation just that he performed well. Um, and that is like, that's very much his comfort zone. He's then all buddy, buddy. He's going to be. Like he's getting a lot more comfortable in that scene, uh, and then of course, as the woman starts to ask him about, um, you know, who he is, and as it's revealed that he, you know, he's been taped the entire time, and eventually those tapes are stolen from him, uh, like it, it he retreats back into that. But I think that's a great scene for like it goes on a long time. It's like a 15, 20 minute scene of it's just like, one location, but it's, it's like it's maybe the that, I think it's know? the longest scene in the movie, right? Like the longest single scene. It's kind of the centerpiece of the yeah. whole thing in a weird way. Because yeah, it doesn't really side, like, feel like it, but yeah, you don't you don't see a whole lot of people like talking about or like clips from that scene or whatever because the the park scene is much more uh, like recognizable. The uh, yeah. end the end scene with the uh, hotel rooms is is pretty recognizable, pretty iconic. But that middle scene is, I think, where a lot of the storytelling actually gets done. Uh, like that whole entire plot. Like I think 
the plot, and we can talk about this more later, the plot that Moran references where uh, Harry's information led to the death of a family is, I, I think, what like he's seeing uh, in his hallucinations in the yes. apartment. Like, I mean, of course, there's arguably there's been cleanup and stuff, and the couple has you know made uh, made made their uh, whole they've cleaned up basically after they've left but he's clearly like not in a great mental state he's been dreaming about this woman he uh imagines that he sees her dead all that kind of stuff um and that scene is where all those seeds get planted and you see like the both versions of harry in one scene like the recoiling from the implication that he's responsible for something that he has made an that he has had an effect and been affected and the he's now back in his shell right. back in his comfort zone harry well, and, and this is something I've been sort of struggling to articulate, but that scene does a really great job. Um, I think that like it's a it's a weird way to to talk about this, but Harry Call has like a little bit of a god complex in the sense no, that exactly yeah in the in the yes. sense that yes. he thinks that like by being the best, and he does take great pride in his work, right? He thinks that being the best at it, like it removes him from ethical responsibility exactly yeah in in taking part in it or or even in sort of like pathological responsibility of caring about the people he thinks that if he gets good enough at it he can remove himself as a participant in it entirely like from society from culture from the yeah. implications of what he's doing and in very like by the very process of doing that, he is actually doing the exact opposite, right? Where he is drawing himself further and further in. He is becoming himself interiorly more affected and he is affecting the external more um, to the point where like, like you had said, Jason, I think that there is like a semi-deconstructive reading you could do of this movie where like, I've always questioned if he received that call at the end of the movie at all, right? Like, I think that you could read the movie either way, right? Like he's, you could make the argument that, that he hallucinated the sort of cleanup. You could make the argument mm -hmm. that he hallucinated seeing the actual attack take place. And you could, you could sort of make the argument that like, at some point we stepped completely into the, the world of Harry's psyche projected onto and his own failures and his own sense in which right. he is perpetuating evils by what he is doing and what he's attempting to do um, by the end of this movie. And how it's like increasingly broken, right? Like he, he through that repeated review, and finally, real, like he has a couple of really staggering realizations. The first of which is that, like, what's actually said, the he would kill us if he had the chance. And then, of course, at the end of the movie, it's how they say it, the meaning behind those words. Um, but at both of those points, you're like that is that is him, his idea of himself fracturing under the knowledge that, like, oh, I'm not actually able to distance myself from this. And it is really, I, I love the the buildup of that character and that role, like somebody who is, whose job is espionage, whose job is uh, subterfuge and, and, uh, and surveillance being chosen as like the lens through which to tell that story. Cause like you could probably find other ways to do it for other professions that have to do with like deception and uh, you know, like you said, the God complex sort of like Pontius Pilate type deal. Um, but in this case, it's like a really timely, interesting, compelling way that doesn't need a whole lot of plot to get there. But um I do want to know uh, about what all this is. Is any of this stirring anything in your mind, Aaron? Is there anything sort of uh, trawling up for for thoughts for you? Yeah, I guess kind of kind of a few things. Uh, the first would be just kind of tying into the idea of a god complex. I think that Harry does very very much see himself and uh, uh, compare himself to God, right? Specifically, like a Catholic, uh, uh, if not explicitly Catholic, then maybe kind of. Um, subconsciously Catholic idea of a God, mm -hmm. right. That is um, omnipresent and omniscient, but like hands off, right. Un unacting, right. 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 Acted a whole lot, acted a while ago and now just kind of hands off observing and all knowing. Or right? at, the very, at the very that, least, yeah. like that is what he thinks it means to be godly. Right. Is, is that like, he wants to endeavor yes. to become hands off in the way that he imagines God is right. It's sure. sort of like, that is how he escapes from worldliness. Yeah, I think this is very much a movie about a a world. I was going to say society, but I think a world in general that is is kind of moving away from that kind of a, a conception. Maybe is becoming um, kind of non-religious entirely. Right? I mean, hmm. the the this movie is often thought of as a Watergate movie. We talked about this a little bit before recording. Um, but the, Francis Ford Coppola said that he did not. This was not about Watergate. Uh, he kind of had these ideas and kind of wrote a lot of this maybe while Watergate was going on, but kind of it, it was like set in foundation uh, before that. 
that is likely true, but like, I think this is kind of after the fact, uh, a Watergate movie, right? And I mm-hmm. think it is um, weirdly prescient in how it uh, kind of prophesized the, the rise of the surveillance state, uh, kind of changing um, kind of national attitudes uh, uh, kind of in the, the second half of the, the 20th century. Um, it's like, it is like weirdly like ahead of its time. I think of like a very weird, creepy way. Um, right. Well, yeah, it's- just the idea that like, like the conversations he has with his friends at this, at this convention or about how the, you know, uh, if, if he wants to get out of the private business, he should feel for, you know, he, he could at any point kind of just like start selling this technology to uncle Sam. Right. right? There's like that as like kind of like a backup career for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, if this would like ever go South, I think that is like, I don't know, man. This movie's very ahead of its time. It, yeah, yeah it, man. It is, it's very telling too that he makes like he makes all of his own equipment. He right. builds his own filters and shit. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, in 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 particular, I really like that reading, Aaron, because it intersects so well with a lot of the other movies we've talked about. Like in a weird way, this is such a perfect blue type movie in that it, it's about how technology is sort of fundamentally changing human beings' relationships with one another, and like how like in an interconnected world, right? Like in a world where anybody can or will or could be surveilled, um, there's really no such thing as sort of like listening without being listened to, right? Like the whole idea here is that like Harry Call is wrong, right? Like there is no such thing as objectivity. There is no such thing as affecting without being affected or observing without judging, right? And like in in that world, like it forces this really fundamental reexamination of what it means to be a part of something, right? It's like I think that there's something really um like sort of uh like valiant about what this movie is doing in the sense that like it feels like a, a real call, no pun intended, for like mm. some kind of increased civic responsibility, right? Because it's like, look, like your your sort of observation of culture and society belies a participation in it right it's like that's right yeah well i just gonna say that like very maybe this is just like gene hackman in general but when i think of the films that we have covered uh uh you know with him in it uh i think that like they've all been kind of uh very critical of the genres they live in or like the time period um you know something like night moves which again is like very underrated but it's very much like a critique of that style of noir right it is like Mm. the the ultimate endpoint of that kind of noir just like driven down the road until it can't go any farther right same thing with french connection which is um (laughs) yes like Yes, it is like such a narcissistic like I and I think this movie is like maybe not narcissistic but it is very Oh yeah. It's, uh, what's the pessimistic? What's what's a what's the word I'm thinking? Extremely pessimistic. Like pacific, yes. And cynical, and yeah. like it cynical. Yes. It does not like Harry Call, like to be clear, right? It's like this is this is not a man that the guy that the movie thinks is like somebody we should be <laughs> like propping right, up. Right. Right. But at the same time, like I was saying about the tra- traditional ish plot from the beginning like it it sort of does set him up as like oh he's the guy who's going to try and find like at the basis level he's going to try and find out what's going on and right a wrong yeah but every element of his character tells you like that's not actually what he's going to be trying to do right he's going to try and satisfy curiosity well, he's and- going to try and like he, like uh, uh, assuage his own guilt he's not going to try and like prevent a murder or whatever you know right well and, and what's so interesting is i i should take that back a little bit right because like i think that the the movie isn't really saying that we should despise Harry Call so much as saying that we are Harry Call in so many ways, mm-hmm. right? Where where like there's this sense in which like this sort of like voyeuristic parasitic relationship that we have with observing and judging people from afar, the movie's sort of making the point that that has never really worked and certainly isn't going to work anymore. And it, right, right. It, it works both ways though, right? We're like I've always read Harry Call as a character who has deep self-loathing issues right or like he is a person who cannot tolerate the thoughts and feelings that he has inside of his own heart and mind right he's he's like warped by his guilt and by the the um urges that he finds repulsive in himself and i think that in a really sort of sad way he wants to prove that not everybody is like that right he he wants Mm -hmm. to prove that like he's he says that thing in the in the first point uh 
Yeah. Do you, Seth, did you, does this resonate with you? What do you think? Oh, no, no. I completely agree with it. Like, I, I read you lo- Harry. You love to see a like, man who hates 70s movies spazzing I'm, out to get to the I'm, mic to talk I, about the 70s movie. This, this movie mwah, hits the spot. Uh, no, I, I read Harry as like this very tragic character. Like, and, and to, to your point, like, I, there is, there is a God complex there. It really, it is just like, there is so much interiority. There is so much, so many competing motivations, so many feelings, so many, like that it isn't, it isn't a, a fable where there's like a paragon protagonist who has one ideal and everyone moves around him in response to that ideal. It, you know, he has this Catholic guilt. He has this history. He has this God complex but I think it is kind of what you're saying where I think he fundamentally sees these flaws in himself of, you know, we are all judgy. We are all biased. We are all limited by our perspective of the world and tries to master that through his job and control it in the same way that like, yeah, that everybody like, you know, respond, like for me, at least like you respond to trauma by like, pulling everything in and controlling it and saying, Oh, okay. Like I can avoid vulnerability. I can avoid pain. If I control all the inputs and all the outputs, if people know nothing about me, if my life is so private, if I am the master bugger who always knows what's around the corner and always knows, you know, how to listen to people and get more information than I give off. Like it's to me like that, it, it, spools itself up into like a really tight, like, okay, this is a really tormented person uh, who like might be trying to do the right thing because it's the, the moral right thing to do, but also just like for his own survival, it is like, Oh, for my worldview to make sense, I need to be able to figure this thing out Mm -hmm. and have some sense of agency in doing it. And it is funny that the whole movie, like a lot of the plot revolves around undermining that directly like the scenes in which he is he's he's bugged with the pen the movie starts with the whole i mean we already talked about this but the landlord gets into his apartment and he doesn't know how the woman he's seeing wants to know more about him and reveals that she knows and like it's it, it's constantly it's like oh we're building this tightly wound character this portrait of a really neurotic uh repressed person who thinks he can shutter himself from the world and be safer for it and it's like now every 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 plot beat in this movie is going to be about how that is not true. I know we've like this is retreading ground, but just saying it different ways. Um, I do want to talk about jazz at some point, but Harry put up his hand uh, just a second ago, and I want to make sure we get his thoughts out first. Oh, baby, you know I always want to talk about jazz, but um, that and I think that like that's where we square the like the god complex with the inferiority complex with the sort of like self hatred set that you um that you characterized really well is that like. There is some sense to me in which Harry Call wants to sort of like in self-mastering, he wants to prove that that like simultaneously he is not affected by human nature, he is not human, and that human nature isn't human nature, right? Like I think that Harry Call is disgusted with other people because he's disgusted with himself, and I think he wants to prove himself wrong. I think he wants to he wants to like find out that like no I don't have these voyeuristic impulses. I don't have these inappropriate thoughts about these people. I don't like want to affect and be affected by them and touched by them and all that. And if I can prove that I can get over it, maybe that means that that's not how human beings are, right? It's like he he wants to prove the nature of his profession wrong by mastering it in himself. And like he's going about it all wrong, right? It's like that's just not it's just not going to work for you, my man, because like it turns out that you are a human being and necessarily all of the things that you're trying to prevent are just truisms, you know? Right. You are permeable. There's that line, uh, which I believe former guest of Trilove, uh, Finn Odom made as their review on Letterboxd. Um, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of murder, which he says in that scene, in the dream scene to the woman that he thinks is the victim. Uh, and that is just going further to like that concept of death, objective, murder, subjective murder is like an interpretation of how a death happened right i'm not afraid of this this is something that i know and can control murder is like oh this is this is the human out this is like the fallibility or vice of man has has enacted a death you know i I mean if we're getting really really nitty-gritty with it but um 
to the point of jazz. And I think we're just, I'm just going to continue that conversation into his, because we've talked about his interiority and like sort of the character that he thinks he is. Jazz, and I'm no scholar of the form, but jazz, as I've always like consumed it, I guess, is one of those, is like a genre best known as it is about sort of the meaning and the spirit behind and or the form and structure around the music. Uh, the performer can go crazy and feel it and not remember what they played, or they can think very deliberately about how they play it, how that is going to be heard, and what it contributes to a piece, right? And I think that the genre, the fact that he's so into jazz, the fact that he's not only a performer of it, but that he like is an avid fan, that he's listening to, he's the only other thing that he listens to except for people uh, throwing themselves into you know terrible situations, um, is... I think it's just emblematic of his, of that dichotomy within himself and like how closely those things are blurred, how he wants to believe. But like, again, the thing that I'm not saying here is that jazz is not one of either of those things. It is both. It is both the, the form and the function. It is the thing that you're hearing and the way that it makes you feel. It is like, I mean, that can be said of all music, but I think jazz is one of those like hotly contested, like I don't get it, quote unquote type genres. You don't get it doesn't mean that you don't actually understand it. It just means that you're not seeing what other people are seeing. And I think Harry is one of those people who is okay with not getting jazz as long as it's got structure, as long as like, he, he solos over other people's music the whole time. Oh, I thought you were talking about Harry. I was like, what the fuck? I was like, damn. Oh, I thought he was talking about Maybe you talked about Harry Mackey is just one of those people who does not fucking understand purity of music. I was just going to judge. Is this is this the crossfade Jason coming out on the podcast right now? He's talking about music. He's like, a little bit CFK, yeah. Well, I mean, like, and and I was joking in the chat. I am going to be very insufferable now. So, like, prep your groans, listeners at home. Um, but like. And here it comes, right? But like jazz is a conversation. That is like the metaphor. Literally the way it happens. Jason was and particularly the, the type of jazz that Harry likes and plays along with, you start with A, right? Which is like a melodic line. And then turn by turn, each of the instrumentalists have a solo where they play variations of the theme and add in their own subjective interpretations and go where the music leads them and create something that is totally unique and unreplicatable. And then each instrumentalist in turn plays off of that theme. And so you sort of return to the theme and inflect it with your own personality. And you also mm-hmm. adapt your improvising based on what had already come in the piece before. So like fundamentally, like Harry subconsciously, he wants to be a part of that, right? Like he's literally yeah. soloing yeah. saxophone, which is like, literally the instrument that is the centerpiece of a lot of jazz ensembles that leads the sort of instrumentation and improvisation of the four-piece bit or what are set or whatever. And like he is playing his own track on top of other tracks of people. He's not playing along with it necessarily. He's adding his own inflections and stylings right, right. because that's what jazz is. And so like we get this portrait of a man who like he's desperate to be a part of the conversation, right? Like he wants to be a part of the world, but he can't be because he thinks that like, he thinks that his wanting to be a part of it is so diseased or so sort of like disgusting that he can't, he has to deprive himself of that. Right. And so we get this, like this really like conflicted soul where it's like, he's a guy who wants to, he wants to be a jazz musician, but he wants to play alone along from home. Right. Where nobody can hear him. And even after the the like final image of this movie that's so famous is that like um, after he's torn his entire apartment apart, he still has his saxophone, right? And he's still playing it alone in his apartment. Like he's still looking for that connection. Um, he's at the end. He's actually playing along with the diegetic with the non diegetic score of yes, the music by that point right. because he has, of course, torn apart his hi fi. He doesn't have music anymore. He's just playing with the music we're hearing. What a fucking poetic way to end this movie. It's like, it's it's one of the best endings in cinema history, right? Like, just him playing alone in his fucking destroyed apartment, it's brutal. As the camera does a security sweep over his apartment. I mean, I I think very specifically, yeah, it's very specifically meant to, like, you know, security footage, Mm -hmm. kind of. We, we are now the observers. (gasps) Little little meta note for you fellows here. This has been one of our most overwhelmingly positive and uh, no holds barred episodes of Trilove. I mean, (laughs) I I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It really is like for me, five star 
I can't think of a thing that's like objectively wrong with it that doesn't have a good purpose for being there. Let me and you, you, you look like you're gearing up to throw me a real hard um, ball. The, the longest scene in the movie, uh, it's, it's perfectly in keeping with the themes of the movie, but like, fuck, that guy is annoying. That guy who just will not Moran. leave Harry alone. He's just yeah. like, how'd oh, yeah. you do it? How'd you do it, Harry? How'd you do it, Harry? We should be partners, Harry. How'd you do it, Harry? It's like, fuck <laughs> off. Jesus Christ. You were just, you were just taking that personally. You thought he was speaking to you yeah, for a little right. bit. I did. Just, you just know, like, like, what happened with the case out in New York? You're like, no, how did you know? <laughs> perfect, uh, perfect objective versus subjective. It's just like what Jason said. Well, I think Harry's a guy who's comfortable just soloing over other people's music, doesn't really understand music. And I was like, what the fuck? What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sick. Uh, no, I, I, I'm having a hard time coming up with anything. Like, I can't think of another way to do what this movie did uh, that's still as good yeah. to watch. Uh, I, we, I, we, we joked about this over Discord, but like this and Blowout, like you know, like a it, so, some, yeah, something yeah, speak, about speak like the, speak for the film fans here because I haven't seen Blowout or Blow Up. Yes. Yeah, you've seen Blowout, right? I haven't seen Blow Up the um the or the I haven't seen original, Blow Up, but I've yes. seen Blow Out. Have you seen yeah, either Palmer. Blow Up or Blow Out? Blow Out is is the Brian De Palma one, right? The Brian De Palma. No, yes. but I am hashtag Team Enemy of the State, which okay. has Gene Hackman <laughs> as another surveillance yes. expert, yes. conspiratorial. Oh, very good. Is like a uh, I think it's like a spiritual sequel, or like yeah. intended, yeah. kind mm. of as one. Yes. Anyway, right. uh, wink, blow wink. Up. Blow up was uh, very influential on this. Uh, yeah. Coppola said as much that the blow up was, and I, I, I they're kind of getting at similar things. Blow out, uh, yeah. See, blow up, it yes. fucking rocks. It's really, really good. That movie's really good. Yeah, but I would love to do a blowout episode of this. Hey, cast. I talked to John. I would love to talk some Travolta. You know, like Travolta is what you wanted, not De Palma. You don't want a De Palma series. You want a John I would love, No, I'd love to talk about De Palma, but but Travolta. I feel, have we done any De Palma? Did, I'm trying did, to think. We did Carrie back yeah. in the day, but you weren't. Was just, oh, I was, I was just being Jason. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. two. What a time! What a yeah. time! I, is that look, the only I'm, I'm just. We've done? Wait a minute. That can't be true. Uh, we never did Phantom of the Paradise. We never did any of the mission. We never did Mission Impossible. We never did Blowout. No Scarface. No Carlito's Way. Damn. Maybe we need, Damn, to, get we need to blow out up. We need. We get De Palma. We get some more De Palma representation. We get more Travolta representation. Um, more Travolta. Uh, Lithgow representation. I guess <laughs> would be in there. I would you love know? some John Lithgow. Are you kidding me? That guy fucking lost. Yeah. Should we He's continue the very good thing? In that. Watch a Harry and the Hendersons podcast. Hey, we have talked about Lithgow. He was on Terms of Endearment. Remember that? Oh my god! No, I don't. I don't. Terms I don't of Endearment is that. gone from my head. Oh boy. Um, I'm I'm really trying to think of a nitpick of this movie. Yeah, to this shit whole time on I've been I, thinking, just for just for uh, fun. Just I'll just, I'll just, I'll just do more hot takes. I think that this is maybe my favorite Harrison Ford performance. Or like it's fucking. Okay. Oh, that's ridiculous. No, I know, but like the thing about it, he's not even really. He is in this as like it is yeah, startling. Same thing with Apocalypse Now, where it's like me. startling. But like, think about it. Though. All right, go like ahead. the thing about Harrison yeah. Ford is that even when he's a protagonist, he has so much antagonist energy. He's so sinister. He's so domineering. Mm. He's so angry that like making him the sort of like semi faceless, omniscient, uh, like powers that be behind the sort of like scenes orchestrating this and scaring Harry Call. It's like perfect casting for him where like he, he becomes this sort of like almost symbol of like the surveillance state and the sort of like the powers that be and then like hmm. at the end of the movie it's like kind of in, in my mind it's implied that he was working with the co-conspirators that uh yeah. well it's yeah, all no. it's yeah it's it's definitely yeah. Yeah. and yeah. so like yes it's man he's so good in it i don't know man yeah, i really I, love I, him. I don't i don't know if i agree with you on that well, i don't something I'm, about calling it his best performance sounds oh just like it's it's well like, it's like, well, issue is because right. like i i have, I have nothing wrong like I'm, he's very perfectly cast i think for all the reasons you had yeah, he's he's he's, he's, he's brooding he can be like he's charmingly deceptive just enough evil. of a strong man exactly yeah. like you could yeah. see him throwing harry call out of that room if he wanted to but he knows that like this is not a situation he wants to inflame at all but there's just not enough of him there. He's not showing right. like what? a range for me yes. to say like it's his best performance. Eh, give him a little bit more range. Give him 
an interesting looking hat, maybe some sort of a whip. <laughs> have him have him have like a full. Well, see, this is the, make him the main character. Yeah, and have a, a story right? I'm not where a, he. I'm not an Indiana Jones guy. So can you launch? I don't know. I wasn't talking about that. I wasn't talking about that at all. Maybe just nothing to do with that. With a few arrows along the way. I mean, yeah, we're, really we're just talking about how to flesh out this character. That is a weird fit for him because the whole time you're watching him, you're like, hey, wait a minute, this guy's charming, but he's also clearly a terrifying fucking maniac. Uh, and should be kept Indiana away from Jones women. A, a piece of uh, subversive <laughs> art of the 20th century. Uh, no, this is this is that that was spicy. I I don't think I can agree with that, but I'm not in yeah, whole in whole disagreement. Um, is it the best Gene Hackman role we've seen him in on this podcast? I mean, he was really good uh, in both the other movies we've seen. But this is French like, Connection is, like, is so good, dude. <laughs> The, in night like moves, he way. does that move where he kicks a guy after swinging on a bar. Oh you yeah, know? He, oh, yeah. He, he does the condition and, him. Yeah, I, I think this is like as an acting wise. Yes, I think I like. Uh, I think I like what's going. He's doing in night moves more, mm-hmm. but I this is a better movie. I'm not. I'm not. You know. Yeah. But there's... I don't know. There's something about like his scumbag nature and night moves. Yeah. That is just like, I don't know that that like kind of embodies like... Gene Hackman is like this kind of like. This weird continuation of these leading men, but like slightly bigger, slightly more like kind of brawny, but also like weirdly like not fit for a protagonist role in a weird way, sure. but still like kind of rocking it. Like, well, I, I don't, like, I can't explain it, but it's when like, did Gene yes. Hagman start acting? Because I feel like that's part of it. Where like I, I always feel like just click on in like the URL here, Gene Hagman let's see. Wikipedia. Uh, I mean, I guess he was only. 26 when he started acting but like i feel like the the um roles that i know hackman from best are like considerably older uh as a leading man than most uh like 50s yeah like even even in this one right like i think he he says at one point that he's 42 in this and i think it's implied to be not true but it's like right harry call is not a 42 year old man come on come on like look, look at that dude. He's not a forty-four year old man either. I think he was like forty-five yeah, I, I, when I, I this was. That he's, yeah, he's in his yeah, 40s but, but that's what he was like. Forty. Like, he, he just looks old, right? Like, Life is sapped. Yes, I feel like that informs the, a lot of the cost the, of living. The hack- Catholic movie. guilt has aged him. Yeah, he was yeah, actually I mean, in film this movie. I'm with Seth. I think this is one of like the best performances maybe ever. Um, it's it's my favorite, or it's it's my favorite Hackman performance that we've seen. I guess maybe it's just that it must be said, right? Like we've. We haven't been doing a good enough job of calling this out when it happens. Harry Call is like an all-time little freak. Like his yes. little his little freakness is like Professional the entire freak. point of the movie, right? Is that like he when doesn't he does, want to book yeah. he wishes he wasn't flush to to cover up his drilling through the wall. That's that's like he's he's little freak yeah. to this before, you know, like he knows <laughs> what he's doing. I have to I have to I have to set up my disagreement with this during our uh our, our golden berries later in the year, so I have to try and knock this down right now before it goes any further. But I do think there is something missing for him to be like a true little freak and that he is very freakish, but he is he 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 does his work. He takes an interest in his work, but it is is as a hobbyist and as a professional. And I need him to be re- just real nasty about listening to people, and he's really not. No, I, I mean, mean he, I, he definitely. But the thing is that he is, and he hates that, and he's trying to combat it for the entire movie. Like, I think he's that, not like whacking it while he's listening to people, though. Like, he, that's he a little he was, dude. You know what I think mean? he wishes he was. Maybe I think he that, that the whole thing does. about this movie is he I, definitely <laughs> wishes he he was in love with fucking uh, Robert Duvall's wife slash daughter slash it ended up being his wife, but like. He was having dreams yeah. about her, man. Wet dreams. That's true. Oh yeah, morning. that dream sequence. We said we should uh, we should say that very good dream sequence yeah, in no, this I, that I was not expecting. Uh, and, and full of like awful, terrifying, sad details about everything. Where he's like, "Oh yeah, when I was a kid, I was paralyzed on the left side. Um, at one point, my mom lured me into baths, and oh, yeah. uh, then she went to get the door, and I slid into the bath. And when I woke up, I was covered in." holy oils that my mother had anointed me with and i was disappointed that i had survived and it was like fuck man like we don't have the movie's almost over we don't that's got time great, to unpack great. all that shit also, also it's, it's, it's it's very funny that right as that scene ends he says when i was five my father introduced me to a friend of his and for no reason at all i hit him right in the stomach with and all then he my died strength. a year later he died a year later oh, yeah. he says that and then, so fast and then he's and then like in the next beat he's talking to the woman and he's like He'll kill you if he gets a chance. <laughs> it's really like the idea that Gene Hackman's uh, uh, hits are 
slow but fatal. <laughs> they're 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 fatal, but it'll it'll take just I mean, a little bit. Like, it's, it's so perfect, right? Yeah. Because it's like it this, takes time to travel to your heart. This motherfucker is like you know, I I know about like the the warmth of being loved, but like that whole that mortifying ordeal of being known. It's much worse, and in fact, I I think that if I can do without the love part, then I can also go without the mortifying ordeal. It's like he's opting out of all of it. He, he's like trying. Yeah. To, he's trying to be like mortifying ordeal of being known. It's worse than love, actually. So I'm just going to go without <laughs> all of it, and he, he can't even do that. He can't get it that way. It's brutal. I yeah, he's definitely he he is going to be on the little freak list. I'm just trying to think what other little freaks he has to. Just off top I mean, of my Mr. head, Ripley he alone. Mr. Ripley alone is is Mr. higher. Now tier. that's a. He's, he's, I mean, he's in my number on. one, number two spot. Honestly, I, for, I mean, like, there's team. also the dude from Possession, which like fucking right out the <laughs> gate, that dude, yeah. like, wait, what? That free the, love, the, the fucking ballerina who is cucking. Oh yeah, <laughs> like that guy is tough yes. to fucking beat. That, right that off man is that. that man is a little freak. <laughs> What a cool he, he, the weird combination of Chad and Little Freak at the same time. Yeah. Which you haven't seen much, you know? No, uh, truly. It's a silly episode. Whenever Cody's not here, we just we kind of uh, go off the rails, don't we? I don't know. I don't mind it. To be quite frank. It. I do mind Cody not being here, but I don't mind how <laughs> silly it's gotten. I miss him. Um, to that note, or to that end, uh, this is usually when we'd cut off and say time for that uh, segment, which shall not be named uh, in his absence. But is there anything else anybody wanted to squeeze out of the tube before we uh, call it a night? If I was going to say, if there would be, sorry, Cody, if you're listening, if there would be a Cody's Noties uh, section of this, I predict that it would be uh, uh, Gene Hackman trivia and be called Gene Faxman. And it would be, it would okay. be trivia about Gene Hackman's career in life. And that that is now what I, I would think would be. Now, it feels like Cody's How in the How tall is he? How big are his feet? That sort of thing. Yeah, how many movies have earned more than a hundred million dollars at the box office? That kind what of what his feet smell None like? of his movies have earned more than a hundred million dollars at the box office. Oh, I'm, sh- I'm sure. Oh, Gene this made Hackman four million dollars. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that's how inflation works. I guess. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> this- uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, yeah. I don't think I can come up with anything better than that. I feel like if Cody didn't have time, he would. And I'm not calling it phoning it in. I feel like he would do a tri-libs. Even though he's pulled that out a few times, this would be a good try lips. This would be a good try lips. Yeah, because he would like make up a phrase. He would have like well, the we would be we would be the people that we were listening to, right? Like it would be Jason and Harry were talking in the park about et cetera. My brother would be murdered in a hotel probably. room next door. And yeah, yeah, probably. probably. Yeah, of course. Yes. Um, huh. I I guess the only thing I have left to say is that like, um, as we always do, right? We we got really deep into the themes of this movie, but like. Just on sort of a technical formal level, like it really can't be stressed enough how fucking masterful it is. Just like yeah. the sound editing and design of this movie is so brilliant. Mm-hmm. Like especially the last half hour of this movie is like maybe one of the most tense parts of any movie. And like it's because they like they have warped sort of like in in coordination with Harry's deteriorating psyche. They've warped the sound design taking the conversation that we had heard earlier and like looping it back into the diegetic soundtrack and, and distorting it further and further to the point where like, there's like silent Hill industrial music happening near the end of this movie that like punctuates the vividness of the maybe hallucinations and maybe witnessing murders that occur to Harry with like so much immediacy and, uh, terror that like it really leaps off the screen, right? Like you really end up feeling the way that Harry does, where it's like when you yeah. see the like the bloody handprint on the wall and you hear that scream that gets like ratcheted up higher and higher, and like hear the like the audio breakdown around it. It's like Jesus, is that like oh, and and in that scene, I should say we caught this at the trial on last night, brand new uh, print on thirty five, and the sound literally shook my seat i think that's the first time that's ever happened to the trilon because they don't have like a huge sound system they don't have like huge woofers or whatever it was it is dialed in the sound design um and generally like when i think about the form of this movie and like the production value and sort of how like it's almost if it were 10 percent more like pointless i would call it experimental but i think it's very like pointed and like useful very like we've sown the seeds we've put the foregrounding in um but there is during that middle scene that I was discussing where they're basically in an empty warehouse, like one floor of uh, an office building kind of place. 
uh, it's very wide open, you know, sort of uh, cool lighting throughout the throughout the whole unit. Um, and most scenes are taken from like people are very far apart, or we're seeing them in solitude within this place, you know, yards and yards from the nearest person. But when it gets to Moran harassing Harry about how he did this and or how he did that one job where all the people died, uh, Harry is on one side of a desk and Moran is on the other, and they're like sort of walking, they're sort of tete-a-teting, and then there's this like uh, not what is it frosted glass or something like a, a, a translucent wall that he that Harry just puts between them for a, for a few shots, and then it's reverse shot, and you see that, and then they move out of it, and then by the next time you see them, there's a literal like chain link fence between them and there's like never not something between those two people especially when it's like caged and guarded and sort of like an acrimonious interjection um the same kind of thing happens during the confession scene where we start with a very like the background looks black because everything is very out of focus very sharp on harry's face and then it's just with the focus changing not the zoom or anything just with the focus changing you start to realize oh behind harry's face is actually the confessional booth. And, you know, there's the, whatever the thing is that separates the two faces. And then you start to see, like, the the father's face on the other side of it, and Harry's face starts to fade. Just formally, it's like everything just sings about this movie. Every, everything feels so intentional and yeah, viable well, and, yeah. It's so intentional. And also, like, we, we've talked a lot about the big moves that it makes, right? Like the big experimental decisions with sound design and with um, – sort of like the the formal conceit matching with the thematic ideas but it's also like it can be a remarkably subtle movie in some ways um in fact like there there's almost like this um this characteristic like anticlimax reveal that they pull a billion times that is so effective to me that your like your stomach just drops out right where it's like the first time it happens is like when he takes the tapes up to the office building for the first time and he takes them away and then he's waiting for the elevator and the camera just slowly pans over and shows that like both it does it twice in the scene right but like first the man and then the woman are just also in that building and it's just like oh shit like something is is going on like we're we're really implicated now and then like again it it just shows like Robert Duvall's character the director like um it does it again when like you're in his office and you just see pictures of him with the woman all the time and it's like like you it never gives you the whole picture of what's happening with their connections to one another but like just drawing that line just sort of like just visually is enough to like get you to where harry is where you're a conspiracy theorist and you're trying to connect everything um and then the most effective one of all right is that when he's just like he's down uh, and he sees the limo and then he just sees the woman perfectly unharmed in the limo. And it's just like, that's all that they did, right? Like there wasn't like a big reveal otherwise, but it was just like, there she is. And like, then all the pieces fall into place. I love that this movie yeah. is like so good at doing that in in addition to everything else. Right. No, it's a, it's a pleasure to watch bears rewatching. If you've seen it before, check it out. Uh, I think I can call that the end of our episode. Everybody, everybody good. We got the three chimes. Cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, again, this has been our episode about The Conversation 1974. Check it out. I think it's right now on Amazon Prime for what that's worth. Uh, somehow Criterion has not gotten the rights to this ever to release it. It seems like a gigantic missing piece in their collection. Uh, but maybe somebody will release a decent looking Blu-ray at some point because the old, most widely available one makes it look like the cover looks like fucking black hat. You should look it up because it looks really, really 2010 information. Black hat rocks. No, it just looks, it just looks kind of yeah. like it, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't man. look like the movie feels at all. No, I don't have anything wrong with man. I have something wrong with Michael Mann's poster maker. I, I would say movie. Michael Mann's, the conversation would be a very different film. <laughs> it would be about how <laughs> Harry call being so good at his job rocks actually. <laughs> and it, it's so and it cool to watch him good. do it. Uh, you love to see a job well done. Um, again, you can go to trialand.org, uh, get tickets to showings like the uh, Nick Cage National Treasure series going on. We also have several other series uh, happening sooner than that. Uh, Agnes Varda, uh, Ishiro Honda's Godzilla, uh, and a few others that are going on at the Trilon and related theaters around the Twin Cities. Check it out at trialand.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. This has been our podcast, Trilove. Find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. I'm Harry Mack, and I always forget that I have to go first when Cody's not here. R.I.P. Cody. Uh, gone but not forgotten. You can find me on Twitter at Shiitakehiri. And I'm Aaron. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. 
somehow I forgot to give uh, Seth an exit ramp. Just feels like too natural a part of the show. You filled a, a hole that uh, we didn't know needed filling. Uh, so, um, yeah, gross. Seth, tell us where, where people can find you. Uh, yeah, thanks again for having me. Uh, thanks again for finally pulling me into a podcast where I have to acknowledge 1970s movies can be mm-hmm. good. Uh, you can find me not tweeting about 1970s movies at S.N. Zarati. <laughs> <laughs>